about you. I ate too much salt and sugar. I weighed myself before we, on Wednesday, and I'm not going to weigh myself again until this next Wednesday. Got to let all that salt pass through, you know what I mean? So we're going we're gonna to just drink a lot of water and eat healthy for three days and hope nothing changed. All right. I actually want to pick up where we left off last week at Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. And um, I do want to remind you, 54 was all about Israel and Israel's uh, ability that God gave them to receive the covenant, that they are the recipients of God's goodness and the covenant of God because of the sacrifice that we learn about in Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12, the suffering servant, the Messiah. And so Israel receives all these blessings at this time where they feel that they've been forgotten and they feel as if God has not kept his promises. God is always faithful and he's not on the timetable of mankind. And uh, we see that continue into Isaiah 55, where we left off Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. We, uh, I'd like to read them again, and uh, we, we read these blessings from God that are given, and this language of acceptance by God based upon the goodness of God, nothing else. And so we read verses 1 through 3, I'm going to read them again right now. Ho, our attention, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me and hear and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And so we get this invitation from God to accept this free gift. And there's a lot of commands that are given here in this section. These the people are in deep peril. They've been suffering, they're hungry, they're thirsty, and only Christ, only the Messiah will satisfy what it is that is these hunger pains or this deep spiritual thirst for truth. Only the Messiah will satisfy. And so God extends this free invitation to come and to buy without money. Come and take what God is offering with no effort on your part, no righteous payment made by you. The payment has been made. Christ is offering, and he's offering this satisfaction that you've never experienced before in your life. Something that will quench this deep thirst and spiritual yearning that will fill the hunger of your soul like nothing else can. And that's what's offered in 55, 1-3. The people are in deep peril, and yet God has provided. There's, this is just a verse of imperatives, or three verses of imperatives. Almost every single word or, or, or line has imperatives in it. And so we read, Ho, or attention, give me your attention. Come, buy, eat. Come, buy. Verse 2, listen. Verse 3, incline your ear. Come, hear. Right? God has done all the work. 
The Messiah has done everything. All you have to do is, is hear what he's saying, come to him, and receive the gift that he's offering. Sounds very similar to verses we read in the New Testament. We read them last week. We read one just a moment ago, Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. And so the New Testament and the Old Testament, Isaiah and Revelation, agree perfectly with this invitation that's extended by God and God alone. Given to these individuals to, to really in contrast to their own efforts. Because they've taken their, their spiritual work that they've tried to accomplish on their own and they've wasted it on things that bring no satisfaction. And yet Christ offers freely full satisfaction. And so he gives this call to listen carefully. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good or the best. Take delight in what God is offering in abundance, the sure mercies. In fact, it says the sure mercies of David, and it's the sure mercies that David experienced, the covenant that he experienced, this poor, insignificant shepherd boy who was pulled up by God and given the blessings of eternity, not because of anything he did, but because of God and his righteousness. And so God is the one who redeems, and God is the one who makes the covenant. And what's the requirement? Hear. Just listen to what God has to say. Come to him and take or receive what God makes. And so that's where we ended last week. And we're going to pick up in verse 4, where this invitation is now extended. Verse 4 and verse 5 read, Indeed, I have given him, that's the Messiah, as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And so there's this invitation that is extended to all nations to join with Israel, right? God is not replacing it. He's not taking Israel and saying, Israel rejected me as a people. They crucified and, and put me in a tomb. Therefore, I'm done with Israel. And now I choose a whole new people, these Gentiles. God hasn't done that. He's, he's been rejected by Israel. But instead of him pushing the nation away forever, he's saying, I'm now going to add to you a whole people. He doesn't take away. He only adds. And he adds now the Gentiles. And of course, they've been added for all of eternity. Anyone who turns to Messiah has been added. And, and so he makes his statements very clear here. There is one ruler, one leader, one commander, and that is Jesus Christ. And so they're commanded to follow the leader of the world, the, the, the witness one, the one who bears truth, the one who brings truth to the world, not just to Israel, but to the whole world who's bringing salvation. He's called the leader and the commander, which would agree really well with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
All right, I made this statement a couple times last week as we walked through Isaiah 54. Sometimes people think Isaiah 54 and 55 is just about Israel returning from exile, the Babylonian captivity. Uh, uh, one, well, now it's 2,500 years ago. That's not true. It's about, it's about a nation entering into this promised kingdom. And as you read through, you read these eternal statements of eternal blessing and goodness of God, not just for one small segment of people in a small segment of time. And so here he is the leader and the commander of all, the entire world. He brings salvation to the entire world. Verse 5, surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you. Many nations, not just the Jews, will run to the king. And he will make a new people, a nation that they do not know, that the Jews in this case do not know, a people, a group, a nation that has not been considered to be under his authority, but they are. And the servant brings salvation to them all. The promises of David are given to the Gentiles. And this is a great chapter. This is really, as I said last week, 55 is the epilogue. It's ending all these servant songs. The servant songs that began way back in Isaiah 42 are now ending here in Isaiah 55. Although Isaiah 55 is not a servant song, it is paraphrasing all that has been stated in the servant song. That God sent His only begotten Son into the world. That whoever believes on Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what Isaiah 55 is telling us. And so He is the servant, the great servant, who sits on the throne. And the servant will call them his people, the Gentiles and the Jews. And they will recognize him as Lord, and they will know him as the Holy One of Israel. I remind you that that phrase means the one who flawlessly keeps the covenant. So the covenant that was made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and uh, Israel and to David, that covenant that's repeated all through the Old Testament, God flawlessly keeps that covenant. It's hard for us because we see kingdoms come and go and we see people, we see waves of Israel obeying and not obeying, times where they're obedient and the Lord blesses and times where they turn their back on God. And we look at that and we look at the passage of time and we look at people come and go and come and go. People die and we say, how is God keeping his covenant? He's keeping it perfectly, flawlessly. And we're going to see that even continued in this chapter. And so they see God and they see God in his glory. And they bow down and they give him reverence and obedience. And how does this happen? happens through a heart transformation. Verse 6 and verse 7. It, it amazes me that today even Jews do not believe in, in uh, a heart obedience, only an external obedience to the word. And yet here God is, is asking for a heart obedience. He says in verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is, is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. 
And so there's this heart transformation that occurs when people follow the servant, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And the command here is to seek the Lord. These, these blessings that have been talked about in 54 and 55 must be sought with a, a, a repentant heart, a penitent heart. God is reaching out, and the time is found to be now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That is now. Call upon him while he is near. That is now. Right when the Lord is stirring your heart is the time to act. Human reason tells us, wait, wait. Okay? Lord's stirring your heart. Don't let it be an emotional response. Wait. Really weigh these things in your mind and make sure if they're true. God is saying, I'm the emotional response. I'm the creator of emotion. Emotions are deceiving us very much. But when God is the one stirring our hearts, when God is the one pulling, tugging at us, convincing us of what is true, it would best be that we respond quickly. God is reaching out and the time is found to be at hand. The fool will turn away, but the humble receive the free gift of grace. And so remember, the call is to hear. Right? 54, and there at the beginning of 55, this, this call is to hear, to come, and to take. Hear God speak. Come near to Him and take the waters of life freely. Come, take what you do not have money to buy. And so the command is, is a command of repentance, to forsake wickedness, to repent and turn to the Lord. But it's not just outward action, it's the heart. Let the wicked, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way, that means turn his back on his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. So it's not just actions, it's not just the external, it's what's going on in our heart, in our mind, the things that we're thinking, the sinful practices that we harbor in our heart. We're to turn our back on them, to forsake them. That's the word repent. We're heading in one direction. Repent means I turn, I do an about face, I turn around in agreement with God. Mankind is desperately wicked, pursuing its own heart, and God says turn around. Hear, listen to me, and come to me, and take what I offer freely. It's a call to repentance. And yet, the emphasis is on now. Right? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. It's never a good idea to say, I'll repent later. I'll get right later. I'll turn my life around later. Boy, is that not a lie that many young people believe? Maybe when you were young, you yourself even believed that. I've got plenty of time. I'm going to live my life now and enjoy it. And later, when, when I have time, when it's appropriate, when it's easy, then I'll settle down. I don't know how many times over my decades of ministry I have examined the life. I've seen people who lived for themselves, for their 20s, and all of a sudden they have children and they think, okay, now's the time, and they come back to church. And then usually when they're about 40, they realize how much of their life they've wasted. And they look back at those years where they pursued their own things, and they enjoyed their own, their own lives and their own style and their own pursuits, the things that they wanted, only to regret it later. 
it is never a bad idea to repent and come near the Lord. Don't wait. And why? Because God's forgiveness is magnificent. Verse 8 and 9 are actually uh, often misquoted verses. And we, we misquote them, we quote them correctly incorrect. And here's what I mean. We're not wrong when we say these verses, but uh, when, we, when we, we use these verses, I should say. Let me just read them and you'll understand. Verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now listen, usually we quote this verse when we're trying to explain God's will to someone and they're not getting it or we ourselves did not get it and we say, well, listen, God's ways, they're just so much higher than ours. We can't really understand what God is doing and we try to do things, but God works it out better. That's because God's thoughts are not your thoughts. And, and that's, let me, let me tell you, that's not incorrect, right? That, that principle is true, but that's not what these verses are pointing to. This is in the context of Scripture. This is in the context of God's righteousness because mankind is desperately wicked and God is magnificently righteous. We do not think the way that God thinks. And so that's how we usually use the verse. But here, it's, it's in the context of salvation. God is always righteous. And we are called to join Him in thought and action. It's part of this repentance. It's an acknowledgement that God is righteous and we are not. And so we turn and we repent and we join with God. That's what the verses are speaking of. Thinking, not just thinking the way God thinks, but agreeing that God is always only righteous in what he thinks. Let me ask you, do you think, do you believe that? I know that all of us would say, yeah, 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 I believe that. We would nod our heads and agree. But deep down in your life, if you believe that, you're going to apply that to how you live. Do you apply that truth that God is only always righteous? Let me tell you how I think that would look, or one of the ways that that would look like. That would look like a moment deep humiliation when we turn to Christ for salvation. It would mean we would be willing to admit how desperately wicked we are. We wouldn't hide it or try to hide it. We wouldn't be ashamed of the, the unmatchable righteousness of Christ. This act of salvation is accomplished only by the Lord. It means we wouldn't try to gain righteousness to find favor with God. Now listen, mankind, that is our natural inclination. I can prove it to you. Every religion of the world says all you have to do is be good enough for God. Every religion says do good and, and one day maybe the scales will tip and your righteousness will outweigh your wickedness and God will accept you. Let me tell you that, that flies in the face of this verse here. God's ways 
are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. Meaning, there is no righteousness that is found in anything else other than Jesus Christ. You can never be good enough for God. And by the way, that fits then when you become a believer and you say, oh, it is only because of God's grace. I submit to God. I know that I have no righteousness, no works that are good enough for God. And then you, you receive salvation. And what, are, what is our natural inclination after that? My natural inclination is I had better do good to please God so that he'll bless me. It's the same thought. It's the same thought that I can earn God's favor by, by being obedient. That I can do righteous things and God will say, oh man, look at my servant doing it. I had better give him lots of good things because he is so righteous. It's the same thinking. It's the same thought pattern. We, we understand and we know not to use that, that thought or believe that lie when it comes to salvation. Do we believe that when it comes to sanctification? Now listen, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what you do. Go sin, do whatever you want because your obedience doesn't matter. I'm not saying your obedience doesn't matter, but the motive of why we obey matters. Do we obey God out of a a, a penitent heart? Do I recognize that all my righteousness, even now as a believer, all my righteousness is still a bunch of filthiness? It's only because of God's goodness and God's grace that I have blessing in my life, not because of me. Do we think that, or is it really falling back on our obedience? I'm asking you, seriously assess your own heart. Are you, out of just a glorious praise to God, obeying Him because you love and adore Him because He is always only good and righteous? Or are you doing it to get something from God? Well, here, this verse is a call to abandon our thoughts, to abandon our ways and agree with God. God's glorious wisdom is far above ours. And and any act of salvation is, is, uh, is only because of His goodness. Not because of something we can concoct. And if that's true, then the manner in which we live out forgiveness matters. And our forgiveness comes by way of the truth, the Word. Now we would say Jesus is, in John 1.1, Jesus is the Word. But He's also given us the literal Word, the the communication of truth. And the Word is, is paramount in the communication of God's thoughts and God's ways. And so we must know God's word. Now look at the work of God in verse 10. Verse 10 and 11, it seems very, um, it it seems odd to us. He's going to give us an illustration of the work of the word in your life and in my life. Verse 10 says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. We get this illustration. This is an illustration of uh, the natural cycle of precipitation. 
Okay? I want everyone to work really hard. Go back to third grade. I think it's third grade, maybe fourth grade. I don't know. I've studied this four times in the last ten years. The, the cycle of precipitation, you know it, right? Water evaporates. It goes up into the clouds. The clouds move around the earth. They kill it, begin to collect together. As Eventually, enough of them collect together that the water becomes too heavy and its volume too much, and it falls to the earth, and rain falls upon the earth. And as it collects on the earth, it begins to collect in small streams, gutters and streams, and then it goes to rivers, and the rivers go to lakes and to seas and to oceans, and then eventually the water begins to evaporate, and this whole cycle of, uh, uh, of precipitation goes over and over, and it repeats itself. It's cyclical, and it seems random to us, right? It's raining. Ah, how perfect. It's raining today. I didn't know it was going to rain today, if you couldn't tell by my expression. I don't watch the weather, because it's constantly changing. And the weatherman's wrong anyways. Right? So it rains. Who knows how long it'll rain for? Nobody knows. God knows. And it'll rain. And the rain will go. And it'll funnel in ponds and to streams and to lakes. Eventually it'll evaporate. The same drop that falls here may eventually fall somewhere else. It seems random, and yet it works together. Events that seem unconnected to us, but events that work together in perpetual goodness. And he tells us, verse 11, so shall my word be. The same thing is true of the word of God. The work of truth in the life of a sinner. God's grace works greatly in the life of a sinner, changing what seems to be unchangeable and overcoming what is beyond understanding and restoring what we thought was impossible. And so we have this cyclical return of God's Word. God's Word falls on the ears of listeners and works a, a glorious transformation. And the truth of God prickles into the, into the life of a sinner and it spreads through their mind, working an unfeasible transformation that takes time. More watering occurs of God's Word and it begins to pool in the heart and mind of the sinner. And eventually it produces a regeneration a regeneration in the life of a sinner. And just like the water cycle takes place over an expanse of time and space, the Word of God brings a change in a sinner's life over time and space. By the way, same illustrations used by Paul in 1 Corinthians, where he says, I, Paul, watered, I, Paul, planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. It's the same, a similar illustration that a little bit of truth sprinkled here in their hearts, and, and a, a little time passes, and more truth falls into their heart, and God uses that to, to spring forth everlasting life in their hearts, to bring them to a point where they recognize the truth that we just went through in Isaiah 55, that there's salvation in no other name. You cannot encapsulate the work of God into a, a single drop or an event it's an assortment of skirmishes invoking miraculous transformation by God in the life of a sinner. And here's the, here's the point. God's word always invokes a reaction. Now to us, we might not see that. Just like the rain that falls in one place and evaporates in another, we might not see 
of the action. Just like Paul said, well, he waters, or he plants, Apollos waters, but God gives the increase. We might not see what's going on in their heart. We don't see this transformation that occurs over time, and yet God's word does not return void. It always invokes a reaction. Sometimes it's not the kind of reaction that we would want, right? You give the truth to someone, and they despise and hate the truth and reject it. That's a reaction. But many, many times, that truth sinks down into their heart and begins to spread and grow. And you don't know what God's doing in your heart. Now listen, why is this important? If this is the power of the word of God, then why do we not wield it more frequently? If that's the the cycle of the word of God bringing about and affecting change in the life of a person, why do we not use it more frequently? If the word of God does not return void or empty, it's not useless. Every time that we use the word of God, it should be effective. Why don't we use it more? Let me ask you, do you believe in the transformative power of the word of God? If you do, then how do you use God's word to speak to the heart of others? Are are you careful? Are you careful to use God's word with precision? Or are you careless and clumsy about it? Right, and we've all seen and heard people who clumsily use God's word. And when I say clumsy, I mean they might even use it in an abusive manner. They use it like it's a weapon to beat people over the head. Where in Scripture do you find Jesus using the Word of God clumsy or or, or ineffective? You don't. When he's attacked by Satan, and Satan is tempting him, he doesn't batter Satan with the Word of God. He simply speaks it, and what happens? The devil flees. When when he's uh, dealing with a uh, writing in the sand, and he's dealing with a wicked, wicked woman, tenderly says the right words that penetrate her heart. God is effective. Jesus Christ, obviously we know that. He is the word. He wrote the word. Of course he's going to use it effectively. And are you not to do the same? To use the word of God carefully. How do you share God's word with precision? Maybe I should change it. Can you? Can you use the word of God with precision? Do you know it well enough? You're a believer today. This should be our greatest weapon. Right? Ephesians tells us that. It's the only weapon, in fact, that you have. The Word of God. Do you know it? And do you use it effectively? Well, all of this truth that has been piled into the life of Israel and piled into the life of the Gentiles culminates now in incredible joy in verse 12 and verse 13. The scriptures say, for you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace and the, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands 
Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briars shall come up the myrtle tree, and it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so we have this great joy in deliverance by God. I ask you again, is this, does this sound, does the language there of verse 12 and 13 sound like just a temporary blessing in a, in a nation in one little segment of time? To me, these sound like everlasting truths. Promises that are endured. We see the curse even, even reversed in a sense. In that the, the briar and the, the thorns cease. And instead of thorns come up cypress trees. Instead of briars come up myrtle trees. Right? There's joy in, in the fulfillment of the covenant. Of the kingdom. Many believe this is just addressing that return. But the magnitude of this description fits not an earthly kingdom. But a spiritually eternal one. And so we go out of the kingdom of men and into the kingdom of God in this verse. And creation joins in singing praise to the Lord. And we read of the blessings of restoration, the curse's effects diminish. The blessings are a a testament of God's goodness. What we already learned, that God's ways are always only righteous. We read of the restorative work that has eternal purpose. And how is this possible? Only one way. Isaiah 53. Through the suffering of the servant. Through the suffering of the servant, this mysterious healing is through the wounds of the Son of Man. These glorious blessings are through the bruising and beating of the Messiah. This magnificent restoration is through the death of God. It amazes me how people can read these passages, Isaiah 42 through uh, Isaiah 55, they can read these passages and miss the precise equivalent of the song, servant songs, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. These passages may be far apart in God's word, but they rain down the exact same truth. And so we read in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, we read the words that are similar to Isaiah 53, verse 4, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. We read the words of Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, in Acts chapter 8, verse 33. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked Philip, or answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. We read Isaiah 53, 12. In the words of Mark 15, 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Luke 22, 37. For I say to you that that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. We read Isaiah 52, 15 and Romans 15, 21. But as it is written, to whom he was not announced, 
they shall see, and those who have not heard shall understand. That's me, and that's you. And lastly, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, we read in Matthew 12, 17. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles are kept. It is because of God's goodness that we gather. It is because of the sufferings of Isaiah 53 that redemption is made. It is only because of him that we even understand what righteousness is. And so I ask you today, if you're sitting here today and you have not accepted the righteousness of Christ, would you listen carefully? Would you respond while he is near, he is calling to you? Do not delay, do not waste time, do not think you can come back later when when you're more ready. The time is now. Receive salvation. And to the rest of us, to those who have received the righteousness of God because of His eternal goodness, how are we effectively using the Word of God to speak to the hearts of those around us? Do you know God's Word? And do you use it correctly? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We acknowledge that in us there is no righteousness. There is nothing good. That is a hard thing to say because we desperately want to appear good to those around us. And yet we know what's going on in our hearts. Know there are some here today who are calling to their hearts. You're calling to them to listen, to come near, and to take the water of life freely. I pray, Lord, they would not delay. They wouldn't waste no more time. They would humble themselves and agree with you. And Lord, for the many of us who have already tasted, who have already found that your truth satisfies, that your righteousness is the only righteousness. I pray, Lord, you would speak to them correctly, that we would use your word to rain down truth gently into the lives of people around us, saved and unsaved. That we would find those who are broken and hurting and we would simply point them to you. For you call us. You say to us, come. All who are broken, all who are burdened and are heavy laden, that you alone give us rest. Lord, help us be careful Use your word to encourage, to challenge, and to point others to you, the only one.
thank you for the work that you did on Calvary for us. May we never forget it. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.